And welcome back to the Book and Life podcast. Today we're going to have a brand new book guest on. Whether they're an author, an editor, a producer, you'll never quite know. So you're in for one hell of a ride. But today I just have to uh, do the adverts and then I'll get us straight into that most important conversation. And as as we do every week, um, I'm going to read The Shadow which is part of the Time Guardian series, and this is book four from Marianne Curley. The battle is over, the war is won. The prophecy complete, but life can't just pick up where it left off for Ethan, struggling to cope with tragic loss. At odds with friends in the guard, he finds himself adrift, jumping in shadows and sensing someone who can't possibly be there. Blaming herself for the goddess Athena's death, Giselle's revenge to fullify the immortal's plan for world domination, but Giselle hadn't planned on love, and that leaves her with an unbearable choice. Should she follow her heart or the strings of a goddess short on praise but high on expectation, who continues to pull her from the grave? As the guard and the order battles through the past and into an impossible future, darkness looks round every corner. The fight for the world's survival rests with just one. Is it friend or foe who stands in the shadow? And just a reminder that The Price of Freedom by Rosemary Aiken, sorry, Rosemary Rowan, um, is being donated to the Ukraine cri- refugee crisis. And here's the blurb for her book. It's uh, one of her... Roman British crime series, which was written under her maiden name. All editions can be found online where all books are sold, even her agents donating her commission. Sorry, I don't have the blurb for that, but uh, that's that's what she's doing. And now, without further ado, let's get you to the guests. I promised you guys an incredible guest, and she is here today. I was blown away by this woman's book. I got the press release. It got it today when we're recording this on the 4th of April. This will be out on her launch day and honestly she's going to be a bestseller. I can't (laughs) see any other way that this is going to go. She's going to be the top of my uh, top five historical authors. I think she's going to hit that spot without any issues. So without further ado, Let's welcome Joe Baker. Thank you for having me on. Usually the introductions, people either get very embarrassed or <laughs> you're the first one to laugh, actually, to be uh, that's, honest. Um, that's my embarrassed laugh. That's what that is. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, it was a really lovely introduction. I was absolutely chuffed, but like, as it's audio, you can't see that I've gone bright pink and um, I'm slightly hunched. <laughs> But yeah, I go, I go like that laugh. all the time. <laughs> yeah, like anytime I do media, I don't wear makeup. I don't, I don't ever wear makeup. And unfortunately, my face tells everything. Yeah. So when I do radio, yeah. I'm okay because people can't see that I'm yeah. like beetroot. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, Joy so of radio, or, really. Yeah. Or I get my my co-author if it's a co-authored book. I can I just send him in because he doesn't mm. get embarrassed. Yeah. So he can go in and he's fine until he forgets what the book is, and then I'm sitting there going, <laughs> "That's awkward." <laughs> no, 
enough, enough. You need to know the book. Yeah, you do. You do. Yeah. Yeah, he forgets. He He's lovely. I love him to death. Uh, we're about to do another show, me and him, talking about our co-authorship agreement that I was telling you about earlier. Um, not realizing, of course, it was going to double my work when I took him in on it. But, yeah, so uh, he'll be on in a few weeks' time. So tell us about your book, because everybody on this show will not have heard anything about it because it's going to be launched on your launch day. So tell us a little bit about it. Okay, so the novel's called The Midnight News, um, and it's set at the very start of the Blitz in London in 1940 and sort of continues through to the start of 1941. And we follow the main character, who's called Charlotte, and she's from a really quite well-off background, but she's living in cheap and cheerful not so cheerful lodgings in south london when we meet her and she's dodging her difficult dad um when we meet her she's already in like a slightly fragile condition she's lost her brother already and when the bombs start to fall when the blitz really begins to kick off um she begins well she begins to lose people and she begins to detect she thinks a pattern in this loss and she begins to think that someone's following her. And we follow her sort of attempts to unpick what's going on around her as the, you know, the world bursts into flames around her and she no longer can trust her, her own sense of how the world works, let alone what other people are telling her. So it's, it's that kind of um, the dual sort of uh, chaos of, of the world that she's inhabiting and her own way of in- interpreting that world. And it's also... And this is one of the things I love about this book. Um, and I don't really, you know, I don't tend to say that about my own stuff. But one thing I love about this book is the love story in it. I don't often write a love story. Um, but at the heart of this one, there is a love story between two people for whom love had always seemed out of the question. And yeah. bringing them together was a real joy, really, as a writer for me. So... What inspired you to write this? What was your your aha moment? I've got yeah. to write this. Um, so there's a kind of it's a hard question. Yeah, because it's quite a it's quite a it's quite the book was described by a reviewer as a Russian doll of a novel in that there's sort of little it's sort of mm-hmm. like there's more and more inside you pick off one layer there's more going on so different elements of that were inspired by different different experiences and different different aspects of my writing and my reading and my my life um of course i yeah. think with this, this the start of it really was this idea of there being a serial killer at work at a time of war like when there's chaos going mm-hmm. on when the world is bursting into flames what if someone's taking advantage of that that time, that that chaos. But I don't really like serial killer stories and I don't really buy the idea that serial killers are like these, you know, special, you know, that they've, they've got like plans and elaborate sort of clues and that Plots. we're going to investigate them. But yeah, because they're, they're some kind of twisted genius. They're not, they're lesser people. They're, 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 they're small and nasty. And I don't like that idea of making them heroic or, or central to a plot. So... Yeah. I also I also discovered that there was a serial killer at loose <laughs> in the Blitz. Um, I was, was going to say, I do yeah. that as well. And I was, yeah. I was just waiting for you to mention that. Yeah. yeah, which was that in itself became uh, sort of something that I was playing with in the novel. Um, 
so it kind of um it evolved from from that that sense of like sort of unpicking the serial killer thing a bit which i've done before as well but also that sense of you know the world is exploding around you and how do you how do you make sense of that that chaos and a lot of serial killers it's desperation it's because they've lost control of their world they're not people who can adapt and deal with that situation yeah so this yeah. is how they handle it this is how yeah. they take back control and i think yeah. people because of the media they see it in a different way because it's so yeah. set you know so it's so pushed in media especially any cop show any kind yeah. of absolutely crime absolutely. related it, yeah they look for it and yeah. for me like even a serial killer is still a person who feels like they're in a situation where they're not the villain in their own story but they think that they're doing the right thing and it they're not because of you know their mental health space but they feel like this they have no other option but to do this and i think yeah if we i don't believe in sort of making that thing you know mm. because i i like to say well there's no real villains and there's no real innocence we're all human we all have faults we all do things and you know we have to look at everything in a bigger picture sense we need to look at the entire picture to understand what's going on and not just what we're given so i like the fact that you've tackled that i like the fact that you've gone after that and i think the blitz was a time where everyone was dead paranoid anyway because they didn't know when the bombs were coming they didn't mm. understand why the bombs were falling where they were falling mm. and then there was a lot of conspiracy theories around well is the prime minister trying to make sure that it doesn't hit certain targets and mm -hmm. unfortunately when they've diverted these radar systems it's it's caused it to land in these you know these these home areas mm. yeah absolutely a very um a very disturbed time sort of psychically um and and fascinating for that reason and i also think um for me as a writer it's a question of the stories that you want to tell the folk where you want to put the focus who you're interested in and i would never want to write something that was celebratory of 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 violence that yeah. was that was sort of um focused in that way on on the violence so it really is about the sort of the psychic violence really rather than of the time rather than yeah of course the the sort of uh, the the gendered violence of of that that dynamic um, yeah and the war yeah. made it so that women were much more at risk of violence because they took police officers they took firemen they took every you know they took males from nearly every industry which kind of made it so that women didn't have the same understanding of safety that mm. we do now and also there wasn't this kind of women were getting the first taste of freedom in a sense because they were starting to work they were starting to understand there's life outside the home and of course there would have been males that had been taught the other way and that would have gone against what they thought and that would have caused this awful situation to have arisen um so i think it's great that you know people are now starting to say this was a different time and this is how people's perspectives changed but there was other people that couldn't change with the times and that caused its own issues yeah yeah absolutely and it's something that um 
Tom, one of my characters, picks Charlotte up on when she, Charlotte's my main character, my protagonist, um, when she's talking about this, the, the sort of gender difficulties, that the, the violence that she's experienced, um, that, yes, but also, have you seen what happens to men during war? You know? Yeah, um, exactly. It's, it's a time that's absolutely... Um, um, it's it's absolutely problematic for both genders, but mm-hmm. in, in, in different ways. And Tom himself occupies this very sort of liminal position, um, which means he can't he can't be enlisted. He doesn't he doesn't go to fight. And it puts him, I think, in a particularly interesting position to be able to reflect on on gender and on on, yeah. you know, the, the dynamics of that. And I think it was worse for the ones that couldn't go fight because, mm. you know, they were targeted by what known as the white feather or the flowers and they would be you know people would try and pin them on them so that they would know that you know they they weren't um going to fight or they weren't fighters or whatever it was to make them stand out and my grandfather went through that because he had polio so he had one leg shorter than the other but even though he couldn't physically go to war he served other ways so he did like the electricity lines, he worked on phone lines, he would, you know, he created architecture for bridges and helped them build bridges mm. and stuff. So there oh, was absolutely. a kind of yeah way that he could he could add to the war effort but without having to physically serve. Yeah. Whereas my other grandfather went for the merchant navy route so that he was able to stick to war t- sort of the, the maritime law that he believed in rather than getting sucked into what he considered the more tragic elements of the war. Mm. Mm. And through that, he actually got traumatized more because his job was to go and retrieve people out of submarines that had been sunk. Oh, Christ. Yeah. So he would send divers down. Yeah. Um, they would be at risk of getting blown up before because they were over these these U-boats that were mm. sunk um, or submarines that were sunk. And uh, his job was to help them cut these people out and recover them or recover the bodies. And I don't think he ever got over that. Even like mm. t- to the last, his last day, he talked yeah. very sparingly about what he saw. But what he did yeah. tell us, you know, was he lived with PTSD his entire life. Yeah. Um, a lot of that generation did. Yeah. Certainly it, my grandfather did. I think it also, they that generation gave us an understanding of what PTSD was, mm. at least the starting point. So that mm. nowadays, you know, there's a lot of people that suffer from PTSD from COVID. Mm. And you, you'll think, well, how's that? Because what mm. their trauma that they went through is so significant it's changed their outlook on life mm. and outlook on everybody else mm. and that's what that does there's a lot mm. of people that might never have left their house since covid mm. because they don't know how to re you know go back out and sort of rejoin yeah. society mm. and i kind of like to remind people ptsd is not just for soldiers who go to war but it it's anyone can go through it and anyone can suffer it and the more of us that can recognize those signs, the better, because we might be sure. able to help more people through it. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. But I always say it, my grandfather, thank you for allowing us to have that kind of understanding and a name for mm. it. 
Because there wasn't that before. Mm. So what was the best moment that you had when writing this book? Or the best moment that I had? Or the yeah. best moment that the characters had? No, the best moment <laughs> you had writing It's very difficult to... to um, sometimes to answer those questions without giving away massive spoilers uh, there's a few things in there that i when i was writing i sort of came upon them accidentally suddenly suddenly something shifted yeah, and i i thought um oh okay this is happening now and that was really quite exciting um and for me like i think probably if you have read the book you'll recognize what i'm talking about but i don't really want to say if you haven't read the book i don't want to course, spoil yeah. those moments um but i mean in terms of yeah um in terms of the characters um i th i think what i what i loved most about the book was writing tom and charlotte whenever i got tom and charlotte together i l i really love getting uh, t the, the charlotte's best friend is called alina l for short and yeah. i love putting them together as well so i think for me it was just the 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 dialogue the 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 tentative dialogue of getting to know you between Tom and Charlotte, the way they sort of sort of move around each other in a kind of quite delicate, exploratory kind of way. They're neither really sure of where the other one's coming from. Um, but the, the 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 best mate who knows you so well, who knows you inside out, will take the piss. And of course, who, yeah. And who knows all your history, knows every mistake you've made, you know theirs you know, you've propped each other up through heartbreak, disasters, hangovers, the works. That's, I really Or, or tortured that. in my case by my best friend who thought it was funny <laughs> to torture me in hangovers, yes. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, she did. No, 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 she you're, surprised, you're supposed to provide cans of Coke or fry-ups or whatever. Nope. That's the job of the best friend in those circumstances. My first ever hangover I ever had at college, she walked into my room and I was dying. I had Russian vodka the night before and it had been so strong and I hadn't drank like that in so long. I had thrown up all night. I had oh. maybe three hours sleep. I was hung over to hell. She comes in and she, she shouts as loud as she can, good morning, throws open oh. my curtains, pulls my covers off and says, right, you've got to get up now. Because we got to go shopping for food, and all I oh wanted to do God. was die in my bed quietly. No, yeah, no, nothing's urgent if you're in that state. You know, you can manage with whatever's no. in the cupboard. Uh, yeah, and the, and the, she so she always took great pleasure whenever I had a hangover, but she was more drunk than I ever was. Um, so I used to take care of her when she was drunk. In fact, I lost my bed several times at college because she would sleep in my room. And I would end up sleeping in the local common room because I couldn't get into her <laughs> building. And the amount of times that, you know, other people in my building would come into the common room and be like, oh, hi, Crystal. And I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, <laughs> you know, was uh, was quite, quite common, actually. So, yeah, I became known to all of the janitorial staff because <laughs> they would walk in to do the inspections of the common room and find me dying in the corner on these very uncomfortable <laughs> seats that I've made into a bed for the night um, because she's dying in my room and I refuse to sleep on the floor 
even though I ended up sleeping on her floor. So, but I mean, this is the great yes. thing, isn't it? Friends that you've got history like that with, with where you've got that kind of dynamic where you've known each other for so long and you've you know where all the bodies are buried, you know, um, yep. metaphorically speaking. Um, and that was the kind of dynamic that I wanted to to explore and and, and capture with with Elle and, uh, and we all need that person. Like, yeah, we really do. You know, we like really do. I know a lot of people say, "Oh, you know, I I like being alone, or I like to be my own independent person." Mm. At the end of the day, we all have somebody tucked away, hiding somewhere that yeah. kind of knows our yeah. every, you know, yeah. darkest deed. Luckily, I don't have any from high school friends from high school that, <laughs> that knows all that stuff. But, um, yeah, like that—that that to me is the most important thing about characters. And yeah. I think for drama as well, particularly if you're trying to hit certain points, it's, it's, it's very important to have that kind of, that one person that you know that character can turn to and get mm. you can get more information from those kinds of banters. Yeah, absolutely. And I just think it's just, it's such a, as you were saying, such a key relationship in, in, in life. Um, and, you know, it was just something that I just absolutely relished doing and was able to channel like some of my oldest friendships into and and that you know that was that was a joy really so how much of your friends were kind of looking at your book and thinking mm, <laughs> are we in there well i have shown it to um to yeah uh nothing's nothing's ever a straight lift from reality no. into fiction it wouldn't work you couldn't put like real people in no. there they they morph and change and and shape themselves as as they move from the person that you know to the character that you're writing but um i have shown it to i've shown it as necessary shall we say to yes. um, people who might feel that they have something to do with the content and i'm okay so far <laughs> I've been allowed away with what I've done so far. I mean, by the time you've moved it to 1940, um, any amount of like channeling like real life has got so distant. And uh, I mean, from yeah, my own personal see. experience, obviously it's real life as lived then. But like nobody in the book is is anybody I know. But obviously, I take a lot of my experiences and my relationships and and all that kind of gear and 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 use it as part of bringing that world and those characters to life um, and that's the thing what people don't realize is that as writers you know it's impossible for us not to take what we soak up in life and, and yeah. have that influence what we're writing yeah because we're even though we appear like we're in our heads all the time yeah we are like sponges just absolutely absorbing yeah. everything and yeah that's the great thing sponge about mag magpie it's yeah. just you know ab absorbing and stealing um yeah. shiny things left lying out i will pick them up they will be coming home with me and i don't mean actual property i just mean like no, little bits of, of interesting little nuggets and glimmers and glittery things um and and part of the worry i, I is, certainly have done it myself yeah yeah and the worry is that you'll you'll these things can end up in the in the redrafting you know you redraft and redraft and redraft and think by now it's a long way from where it started but some of these things just come straight, you know, they just travel all the way to the final draft and you realise, oh, you know, that was a conversation I had with that person or that is a thing that actually happened. Um, I'd better just check whether that's okay. Yeah. 
Um, so I, I do I, watch I mean, out I've had those conversations too. Yeah. 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 Uh, do you mind? I had you that. Know, that's asking people, do you <laughs> mind if that's in there? Um, I've never had anyone. I always, I don't really construct it as that kind of question. I construct it of, um, read this and see if you think that this has got anything to do with you is how mm. I ask it. Mm. And in that way, I'm not building it like it is. And then mm. if they come back and say, I have no recollection of whether this is me yeah. or not, I can go yeah. away with it. If I, yeah. they come back and say, hey, that's exactly what happened between us. I have to change mm. it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I get a lot of stick from wrestlers because they do fear that they they end up in my books because mm. I start, I made my career on being a contemporary romance writer with wrestling in it. Mm. Um, and as soon as I announced I was doing it, the amount of messages that sort of suddenly mm. appeared in my box going, don't you use me and see oh, but... that night you bailed me out, don't you dare use yeah. that. <laughs> but do they really mean that? Isn't the subtext of that, like, go on, use me, because I've got yep. all this interesting stuff. And they really want to see themselves on your yep. pages. I mean, I remember yeah. getting woke up at, it must have been three o'clock in the morning, by a wrestling friend of ours, because he had this girl that wouldn't leave his room. And they had spent the night together, and he needed to get her to leave. And he tried nicely, and he tried all these different re- things, and she just wasn't getting the hint. So he phones down to my room and he goes, yeah, can you come and pretend to be my girlfriend so she will leave? Because she was apparently not getting the hint. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah, yeah, please. Because he was obviously trying not to say too much because she was there. Mm. So I walked up to his door and I'm dressed because I had to get dressed to go up because I wasn't going up in my fluffy pajamas. I got dressed in jeans and a t-shirt and I went up to the door and I, I knocked on it and he goes, he opens the door, he says, come in, come in, come in, come in. Totally that, you know, and I had to prepare on the spot, this exactly larger than life monologue that I had to give him about sleeping with somebody else. Oh my God. And she, she watched the whole monologue sitting there she didn't even cover herself which just made it harder for me of course and she gives this you know she watches this monologue and i have to slap it and he knows the slap's coming (laughs) i don't want to hit him because he's smoking a cigarette through an apple so it's even weirder than normal but she's just not getting it and i'm thinking oh my like this is ridiculous and i so i slapped him playfully slapped him but i ended up hitting him a lot harder than i intended to guy's professional wrestler though he should be able to handle this well he did have my imprint on his face the following day (laughs) and i have tiny hands so it looked a bit odd but she got the hint at that point and left and i remember him turning to me and saying I, sh- I am old enough to know I shouldn't sleep with people that are interested in wrestlers. However, that was not the term he used because back in the day, wrestlers have terminology for everything. I will not say the exact term because I think it's offensive, but 
And I remember saying to him, it doesn't matter. You slept with her. She's going to expect your phone number for you to call her. She's your driver for your entire trip in the UK. Why did you <laughs> sleep with her, you idiot? And he went, it seemed a good idea at the time. It wasn't like you were available. And I looked at him and said, I fucking hope not. I've got a boyfriend. You know, so he, he, uh, yeah. So he called me twice during that entire very long wrestling weekend to bail him out. Because she crapped in his room the following night. And so did this end, did, did this make it to a novel or? A little or bit. Yeah. Is it yet to? Right. Oh no, it did. It made it a little bit into a novel. Um, he inspired the sort of the entire trip I had with this particular wrestling company. Inspired some of him because it was just so outlandish, and it was my first time being a wrestling writer who was there in person. And the none of these wrestlers knew how to take me because. To them, a woman backstage was either a female wrestler or a girl that was looking to hook up mm. or a wife of, or girlfriend of another wrestler. So mm. they didn't know how to respond to a female writer. And it was such an eye-opening experience for me that Summer of Him was just inspired off of this long weekend of what I would class as insane behavior. Like, mm. I had never had to be so put my foot down as much as I did you know these are grown men over 40 some of them mm. and I'm having to treat them as if they're teenage boys that I've just discovered what their private areas are for um yeah it was very awkward <laughs> but made for great material so I think you know life has a way of giving us the perfect material but it's also mm. I think for most of us writers, therapy sessions. I lost you there a moment. Say that again. I said for most of us writers, it's therapy. Like yeah. Writing Summer of Him for me was therapy from yeah. that weekend. Yeah. So I think that's important that we we have that outlet, but we can also limit the damage that it might do to other people. Because that yeah. wrestler was not impressed. You know, he's he's still a good friend of mine, but he did yeah. not speak to me for a while when Summer of Him came out. <laughs> Even though I had changed everything, so it wasn't exactly what happened, you know, that weekend. But to him, the idea that I had taken inspiration from our interactions just sort of changed our friendship dynamic a little bit yeah. for a while. But he got over it. He retired, so yeah. he got over it. <laughs> There is a question there, isn't there? I mean, what is it like to be friends with a writer? I mean, my husband's a writer. Hard. Um, and I do have friends who are writers, but my best and closest friends are not writers. Um, yeah. They, you know, they work in caring professions, they're teachers, um, you know, various, various things like that. Um, so it is quite interesting, this idea that, you know, if you are close to a writer, what, <laughs> what kind of risk is that? Does that place you in but I mean I think for, uh, yeah. for me when I'm when I'm writing like everything has always been so um composted you yeah, know experience all, yeah. has to go through a long process of 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 
breaking down and and um, reassemblage um, before it ever gets anywhere mm-hmm. near fiction. Um, that you know, there might be moments that you could recognise um, in something that I'd written if you if you know if if you're yeah. close to me if you're in in my inner circle <laughs> as it were there might be moments but there yeah. would never really be an un un an un undigested sort of lump of yeah. experience in there that you would ever recognize i'd like to think anyway i mean i know from i'm the only writer in my circle mm. which makes it interesting because a lot of my friends they are wrestlers they are performers they're actors mm. And then I have my best friend who's just, she works for an optician. So she's always said to me, it's interesting to be friends with me because I will be so dedicated to her project, I will talk to her about it. Mm. And she feels like she ends up being my sounding board, which is true. Mm. She she is normally my sounding board. But she said that she's watched how my inner circle react to my novels. And it, it is a bit like vulturism. Because they want to see if anything that we've personally gone through is there. Mm. But she also knows that I've redrafted things and I've always plotted things in such a way as to make sure that I never damage or hurt people around mm. me. Sure. But there is always that that risk of something that we've experienced together or we've had conversations about will influence the dialogue that I use. Mm. Yeah, and they just accept it. In thing, mm. there's the same respect wrestlers expect people to dress up as them, have big social media accounts with them, and things mm. like that, because we're public figures. So there's an an acceptance level in at least my inner circle of we are public figures. So these things happen. Mm. I mean, they can go on the internet, and if they Google fan fiction in their name stories that has been written about them will come up yeah so they kind of expect because they're public figures that that's going to be an issue and with my best friend she's also a comedian she also has the idea of when certain things go into the public domain people are going to either remember that they're going to reuse that society shapes how we have conversations Mm mm-hmm and it, society itself shapes how we think. And I don't think, as I don't think everybody's quite aware as as awake to that as maybe they would be if they were writers or if they were, you know, people that are in the public eye. Because mm. we have to see it in almost a different way. We can't just walk away with our heads in the clouds and and focus on our jobs every day because that doesn't work. Because we have this unique talent inside ourselves to see society as it is and how it's influencing and how culture and pop culture and all these elements, even the media, influence what we think and what we say and what we feel. Have you picked up on that yourself? Like when you've been out in in sort of cafes and you're hearing people discuss things, do you almost have that kind of double way of looking at it on both sides where you can sort of see you see what people are saying everywhere but you can also see how somebody from a public situation might 
see a bit more of that picture, if you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Um, I, I hadn't really ever thought about it like that, but that is a, an interesting way of considering it. Like you're a sort of step away. You're not just in, you're not in just swimming in the pond, but you're sort of slightly, you're on the, the bank as well, looking in at, at, at the bank. There is something kind of outsiderly about writers. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I've sort of wrestled with this appropriate word for context. Um, over my entire writing life um uh, i sort of I, I wrote as a child um like little yeah. books like bronte style but on old computer prints you know just tiny little yeah, illustrated books and then i stopped writing when i was at university um and it was it was exposure to all the dead great men i just i couldn't find a place for myself in that kind of the mausoleum of of literature um, yeah i think we all feel that way yeah um and um and then I, I moved to northern ireland to start a postgraduate work and and sort of came back to writing there and it was through meeting real live writers who were real and alive and, and writing and you know you, you could struggling them, you like could go, we all do go, yeah yeah but also just they're people they're not dead geniuses they're just people that you might meet in the pub you know or in the street or you know doing readings at, at the festival or in, in the university and just there just around you know so you begin to have a sense of literature as a living thing and um around that time Salman Rushdie came to to speak uh, in at the festival and um I was really conflicted because I lived in Northern Ireland but I wasn't of Northern Ireland yeah. And so what can I say? What What's my two panels that I can contribute to this vastly complex, difficult, mm -hmm. impossible, sort of seemingly impossible situation? What, what can I say coming from somewhere else and living here? I didn't feel like I had a thing to say or could contribute, but I wanted to write. And um, someone Rushdie said something. I can't remember the line now because it's so long ago. But he said something about, you know, being a writer is 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 just being on the outside. It's being... A stranger in this place and that I found really really helpful because it meant that I could not worry about where I fitted into that duality of because I didn't fit into that duality of of you know the the, the dynamic in Northern Ireland the you know yeah. are you British are you Irish are you nationalist are you uh unionist Catholic, are you Republican are you, are you loyalist you, yeah. yeah yeah so I, I could just be well none of the above stranger yeah. in this place and that's how I wrote my first novel, just writing about being a stranger in that in that place at that time in Northern Ireland just after the ceasefire. Um, and so, yeah, so that, that's that sort of sense of being one step away, observing as well as participating, I think is kind of a... It's one of the characteristics required for the job to some degree. I think it is. You know, yeah. and I mean, I never really thought on it until I'd finished doing the wrestling writing training that I mm. did. And I, it is a very male-dominated world, so mm. I couldn't see where I was going to fit in. Sure, it yeah. Because it was literally white men dominating these writing rooms, and, mm. and I'm this, you know, Scottish female that didn't fit the mould. And he even told me, very openly, he's like, women don't write wrestling. Don't be ridiculous. Mm. Mm. 
but it made me determined to change. Mm. There was a part of me that said, no, this isn't right. I want to change things. And that's when I went mm. into the novel side. Mm. But I also think, I think Ursula, who was the science fiction writer who broke out, and I only learned to her when I was at uni, said that writers were the conscience of society. We are to use our pens to keep moving society forward mm. and to hold society accountable. Mm. And be the society, the mirror to the society, to society. Mm. Mm. And I thought that was so. That was so important to me at a time when I had lost faith in writing. Yeah. Because I was looking at it in a way of. You know, we're all talking about diversity. We're all talking about changing disability situations. We're all talking about making every industry fair. But what does that really look like? What does that mean? What does? How do we do that? And. Mm especially now with Ukraine and everything that's going on there, writers are more important than ever because we really are the ones that say, is this the society we want? Mm. You know, so we're not just writing novels that we want to tell, but a lot of us, we are seeing difficulties for certain walks of life and we are, in our own way, putting our voice to those situations by putting yep. them into the work that we're writing. Yeah. And, you know, you're talking about Northern Ireland. I feel, particularly when, you know, my second book in the, the historical series I'm going to do comes out, I bring up that, you know, Ireland was ripped apart. It was in a bad place. The war happened and it ripped them further apart. Some came up to Shetland to run on the boats. Some went to war and the consequences of that was huge and i think that ties in with the issues that we have now where ireland is on its highest level of alert because there is starting to have outbreaks of violence and outbreaks of terrorism again which is devastating to hear mm. that country just doesn't seem to have healed from the time of the famine and I think it's awful. Well, things were looking pretty good until Brexit. I mean, that's what's yeah. pulled it all apart. That's pulled apart the stitching that was that was holding everything together, and you know, it's just done on done on a whim. And it's just devastating, yeah. absolutely sickening. Um, yeah. So yeah, horrendous. And and the government unfortunately have to hold their hands up to this because it was yeah, them well, that did it. Chance to be a fine thing. Yes, Boris is a lot dancer for. What was the hardest part for you to write in this? Uh, yeah, um, actually, um, it was the 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 Blitz itself. Um, yeah, cause, of course. Um, I I'd had no direct experience of that kind of thing. I mean, like by the time I lived in Northern Ireland, there was it was relatively sporadic and and. The worst that happened while I was there was not in Belfast, which is where I live, but in Oma. Um, yeah. So um, I hadn't I hadn't had anything very direct experience like that. Um, thankfully, thank God. Um, I think we all thank so God for that. Yeah. 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 So um, research, obviously, um, and research would include things like you know contemporary accounts would include 
um, you know, the, and also contemporary creative writing of the time, like short stories and novels and even poetry um, of the time, um, to try and find ways to tell bombs falling from the sky and incendiaries going off and the walls collapsing around you to try and find ways to tell that that weren't just the same, weren't repetitive, um, but were also visceral and would make you feel what was happening. So that was, that was something I had to, uh, learn rather than just write instinctively Mm. and, and edit sort of subjectively it was something that I had to just go away and find out and assimilate and, and, and then learn a kind of a technique. Or, Did you or find some like diaries helpful in that regard or letters? Yeah, there, there are some really good collected um, testimonies from the time. Um, and um, I've always been a fan of, of that era in terms of the writing of that era. Like I did my PhD on Elizabeth Bowen, who um, wrote some fantastic no- uh, short stories and an amazing novel. Um, which I quote at the start of the book um, around this time. Um, yeah, I did. And she's I did really, that, yeah. yeah, she's really good on the um, like the psychic energy of the era, the the weirdness of of war. Um, and yeah, I was trying, I was trying and anticipating this to <laughs> to remember the names of the particular poems, but I couldn't. But I'd been reading Auden and I'd been reading McNeese. Um, both of whom, you know, went through that time. Though Auden actually, you know, he, he left, but McNeese was fire watching. So, um, yeah, so all that, all that went into it. But that was the thing that, like, I, I probably struggled with. Well, I would say struggle. I mean, that was the stuff I had to put the most sort of active, proactive energy of into, course, and really. It, it's very yeah. hard to put yourself into that situation unless you've, you've been through it. Like, I didn't Mm. really understand what it was like to take a fishing boat out into the North Sea until my grandfather said, right, we're going out into the North Sea today. Mm. And then I was like, oh, this is what it's like. Because there's no stabilizers on the boat. We're getting thrown around. Yeah. I I weighed next to nothing. So every time so much as a little wave hit, I I kind of went flying. (laughs) So, um, you know, what it felt like to be clipped to the boat. Because my grandfather was terrified I'd get thrown overboard so he got a, a climbing uh, harness and he clipped yeah. it onto my life jacket so that he would know you where staying I was put. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah but what absolutely. he actually did was just said look stay in the wheelhouse you mm. pilot the boat I'll drop I'll drop mm. the uh, the fishing rods mm. and it was so wide opening for me because underneath his little you know he had a little bed area under the boat which had fishing rods and all kinds of hooks on the walls and the ceilings. And of course I hid down there to begin with. And this 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 big wave kind of hit. And I, I remember just going up in the air and putting my hands out and feeling the sharp edges of the hooks. Nasty. Yeah. <laughs> you suppose yeah. I was landing on the floor. Yeah. Um, luckily I, I learned very quickly how to fall right so I didn't injure myself. Yeah. Um, yeah, like sometimes you have to kind of. When I wrote the minor sea scenes, I just pulled back on, well, what was it like for me to be on a boat for the first yeah. time? And yeah. not really, you know, because we'd only ever been in the harbour before. What yeah. was it like? You know, what yeah. was that feeling like? That, that yeah. fear. And that's when I was able to generate it. And I think for me, when I was watching sort of the Ukraine war and I've been watching 
a lot of that's played is influence into yeah. how I've been able to prolong it. Yeah. And then I went yeah. and did the same as you. I read diaries and letters and, mm. and things. But I, I had to limit myself to Scotland. I couldn't read what was going on in England because it was two different worlds of how mm. how things were playing out. Yes, absolutely. Um, Shetland I think... only got bombed once and mm. it killed a rabbit. <laughs> Missed everything and got a rabbit. Which... I'm led to believe the farmer was about to shoot. That was and, quite efficient then, really. But... Yeah, and, and his dinner got blown up ah, by right, a bomb. Yeah. yeah, that would be inconvenient. Yeah, yeah, you know, you're about to take the shot and the next thing you know, the rabbit's gone. <laughs> you know. But there's um, this enormous crater instead. Yeah. yeah. I and think what you we... what you're saying is really is really interesting. There's that there's that dynamic between um what you can experience personally, what you can just set yeah. out and do as uh, as research or or incidental research. You might not have known that you were going to write that novel when you set foot on that boat, but by the time you've had that experience, no, no then idea. it yeah. becomes part of the resource that you can channel. Um and, you know, there are all kinds of incidental things that happen in, in modern life that that will inform stuff that you're writing historically um and and yeah the the thing that sort of you ukraine war was unfolding as i wrote most of the novel as so many of us who've got novels out right now did i wrote most of the novel yeah. in lockdown um and so i had this sense of a very weird world that i was living in very weird and boring world that i was living in dressed like a land girl for most of it in dungarees and a red headscarf and red lipstick just to try and you know just channel some kind of cosplay yeah. romance I think we all to this did. situation yeah. yeah um getting mucked up to the eyeballs in the garden thinking i must plant potatoes i must plant potatoes for some reason that seemed to be a way of surviving the apocalypse was planting potatoes um and, I think we all had um, weird, weird ways of of yeah. going through that yeah like Shetland people would take the boat out to the furthest point that was allowed because we yeah. weren't allowed to go between islands during the yeah. and they would just fish mm. and then they banned people from going out on boats right which yeah. was almost killer for the island because yeah at the time we didn't know if the ferry was coming or going or christ you yeah know, no really scary was stuff. Be like. yeah yeah um yeah so I think for us, it wasn't a case, you know, I never left the house because I got told, mm. you know, you'd be a person we'd airlift right away if you get diagnosed. You'd be mm. in ICU within a week. Mm. So there was a lot of fear, I think, put into a lot of people. So for us, it was mm. a case of just trying to figure out one day to the next. Like I couldn't mm. go to the supermarket mm. because they were scared that if I went to the supermarket, I could catch it. Mm. Um and my parents were very protective. So mm. my poor dad got sent. Mm. And my dad, who didn't want to comply with any of the rules, suddenly had a ther- you know, a 30-odd-year woman telling him, no, you're masking up, no, you're using hand sanitizer. Mm. I don't care you've got a beard. I don't care it itches. You're going to choose your toe. Mm. Um, so I think we all had a kind of weird way of of working with it and for me sure. it really stifled my writing because i gotten so used to writing on buses in cars mm. uh you know in cafes that i had to kind of almost re-educate my parents on these are writing rules that you have to abide by but mm. then also trying to find that time to spend with them 
because mm. they were freaking out. Mm. It, it became almost too hard for me to write because I had too mm. much responsibility kind of pinned on me from the get-go. Mm. Mm. Um, but I did write. I mean, I did, I did mm. some writing. Just I but wish it's... I'd gotten the time to do more. It's interesting that you wrote about the Second World War as well, though, because, like, that's... I mean, it was it was a coincidence in my case. I'd started the novel before any of the lockdown stuff mm. kicked in. But um, those sort of... This, the, the constraints on us, the legal constraints or the guidelines or the rules, the way that, like, civil society is suddenly changed enormously yeah. and there are new signs up and there are new ways of doing things and there are restrictions and you can only... You can't get hold of certain things anymore. Um, and well, that's what inspired so the parallels. Me to do it. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I mean, for me, it was more like the the book was already happening, but the world started to shift. Um, obviously, just by coincidence, it's not like I did this, but the world yeah. started to echo what what was going on in the book. And similarly, with when Ukraine, when the war in Ukraine started to to kick off, I didn't believe it would happen, and then it happened. Um, and yeah, see, watching the... we knew it was coming. That was the thing. Well, I just, I, think, I just, I think for us because we had Russian fishing boats coming in, and we were hearing mm. a lot of things. Mm. Shetlanders kind of knew from the offset that it was coming, mm. because the fishermen believed it was coming, mm. and that. I think I was just being optimistic. Us. It was, it was more that I couldn't countenance yeah. that it happened. If you see what I mean, um, we had. Um, we signed up for the Homes for Ukraine situation, uh, the, the, the Homes for Ukraine uh, scheme, and mm-hmm. had a family come and stay with us. They only stayed for a fairly short while because they left Kiev when it looked like Kiev was going to be invaded. Two teenage daughters, you could imagine, you would get them out of there as quickly as you could. Of course, so they yeah. came and, They came and stayed with us, and then the, the immediate threat to Kiev kind of retreated, and they began to think about going back again because they'd left a lot of family behind, some elderly parents and 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 their wee dog and what really became clear during that time for me and this was quite late in the writing of the book and it it was in no way like exploitative it was just an awareness that sort of came into my head as I was having conversations via translation apps with with these women who are living in our house yeah was how war just happens to you in the middle of the most ordinary things like in the middle of like dental work like or your exams, or, you know, grandma's bronchitis, you know, all these things mm-hmm. still continue. And you worry about the things, things that seem little, but like the dog stopped eating when they were under bombardment. And they were mm-hmm. so worried about their wee dog not eating. And, and dad was still back there in the defense corps and also looking after the grandparents. And he was having to hand feed the dog because it was the only way that they could get the wee thing to eat anything at all. And to me, it was like, I mean, none of that was actually in the book. There's no dog that needs hand feeding or, or dental work in the book. But just yeah. it sort of reinforced to me the sense of what I'd been want, wanting to write all along and what the book has become is something mm-hmm. about like just being very, just being someone who's not a hero, not a, not really like, the war is not something they can really deal with or engage with. They're just ordinary people to whom this is happening in the middle of yeah. difficult, stressful, complicated lives. Um, and yeah, and so, yeah, 
I don't know where I was going with that, but it certainly, it, the, you know, those big events of those past, the past few years really did feed into it, it's funny the, the process for me. When I came to write the Shetland book, I my mom worked in a care home, so I heard a lot of different stories. Mm. And I had grown up with my grandparents who would set me in the corner of the living room and they would have these guests in and I wasn't really allowed to talk. I was to mm. listen. Mm. And I heard them talking about stories from the days of the war and what they'd done. Mm. Mm. And what terrified me was I heard so many women say, we knew they were going to invade Norway. Mm. We knew it was coming from the minute they mm. declared war. And mm. Shetland has such close ties and bonds with Norway because mm. we were originally mm. theirs and we were given mm. to Scotland. But Scotland's never really had that connection to us. Mm. And the men folk in Shetland made the decision that the moment that Norway was invaded, they would help. Mm. They were our family, our brothers, our sisters, and we would help. Mm. And Shetland played a huge role in getting that royal family out, which mm. has never, ever been acknowledged. But they did. And, you know, we had the Prince of uh, Norway actually open up a memorial for some of the sailors. Because we lost a lot of sailors. A lot of sailors. Mm. A lot of Norwegian sailors, too. And what we didn't know until I was much older was that if Shetland had not been running those special missions, the Germans would have redeployed the troops. Mm. But because... Shetlanders kept going to Norway, kept going to Denmark, picking people up, taking them back. Mm. They kept the German forces occupied. Yeah. Which prevented them from being re-dispersed to somewhere yeah. else. Which yeah, could yeah, have absolutely. The yeah, absolutely. And what's not known, and I, and I think it's really important to know, and it, you know, it's not discussed in my book series too much later on, is the Americans play a huge role as well. Because when they realized that we, in, the Shetlanders were struggling with these fishing boats in these atrocious weather conditions, they had lost a lot of lives and the sailors were broken. They were broken, mentally, yeah. spiritually broken. The Americans gave them new boats, new, new, new vessels that they could then sail to get these people. Mm. Faster boats, basically. Mm. It meant that they couldn't go in as possible Norwegian fishing boats yeah. and get people yeah. as easily. But yeah. they were faster so they could outrun the German ships. Yeah. And that's what they really needed. Yeah. And that sort of stuck with me. That the stories of what these families and these people went through were never going to leave the island. Mm. It was going to be Norway and Shetland's secret for for however long people yeah. kept telling the stories that yeah. that's what made me go write that series because absolutely i didn't want those voices to be forgotten and when mm. i was stuck i just moved up to shetland and i was at the school just before lock the first lockdown and i had started to piece it together then because there was this sort of i had burnout where i'd been writing all these romantic novels and these very focused stories for so long I hadn't really explored what 
other stories I wanted to tell. I wanted to be somebody that could write in many genres, and this was my real first step into historical. Mm -hmm. And I grew up with Catherine Cookson. I was a huge Catherine Cookson fan. And I would never have written historical if it wasn't for her. But then I would never have been a writer if it wasn't for her. So I started piecing it together and then lockdown hit. And it was like almost like a kick to me. Because mm -hmm. I was like, oh, wait a second. I can make this feel like it's wartime. So like we kind of almost went back in time in my house because we had the mm. radio on all the time. And that gave us the sense that what Shetland women would have had in their homes. They had the wireless mm. on all the time. They had the, you know, they were using uh, radios and the, the ferries and the boats at that time. They would listen. These women would sit at night by the fire with these, these radios for these fishing boats mm. so that they could hear if a boat went down. Mm -hmm. And particularly my great-grandmother would go to these houses before the priests would ever show to be there and would she would be the one to tell somebody in her community look your husband's not coming home the boat went down this is where it went down mm. this is what i know happened because for a longest period of time in shetland the church of scotland covered up a lot of the boats that went down particularly if it they didn't know the full story and she didn't like that she didn't mm. like that idea that they would cherry pick what they told people mm. so she would go and she would explain it and I, mm. I I, just found that bravery a huge part of what I wanted to implement in that series so mm. it's funny that your protagonist is called Charlotte because one of the girls that's in my, my series is also called Charlotte because Charlotte was mm. a very Shetland name back in the day mm. Um, mm. along with Isla with Isla was another one it's a diminutive of Charles, isn't it? So um, yeah. that might be the connection in Scotland. I, I, I think it was Shetland's attempt to connect them to the to the royal family. Mm. But I think the disconnect came when they, they took away the title, the Earl and Countess of Shetland. Mm. I think to the locals it became like a, a stinger right. effect. Like, oh, we're not good enough to have somebody represent us. Or, you know, and it wasn't until after the second war they did that. Um, mm. But I think that's when the disconnect from the royal family came for the island. was They felt mm -hmm. forgotten. They forgot. They still feel that way. Um, so, yeah, it was... I'm hoping that we'll see the island respond well to the series. Mm. Of course, there's always the... Uh, the second side to it they might not take to it very well <laughs> and i might get scathing reviews yeah. <laughs> uh, because it's not a hundred percent you know often on what the actual history was i took characters that didn't exist and i made them Marilyn countess and i gave them new names and i gave them a, a sort of more inclusive backstory so that i could tell more different points of view of the community through that series yeah um so I think I'll get some stick because I started the bus mission earlier. I started it in 1939 when it wasn't classed as the bus mission at that point. It was just sailors going out to try and help ships that had gone down. Um, mm -hmm. But the way that I've set it up, it was an experience of, of the Earl that was going out to 
organize these search parties and to help save well we have these freedoms don't we i mean if you're not writing a straight history you can do these things to make the narrative compelling to make the narrative work Um, yeah exactly and that that's just part of the job really isn't it did you do you find that was like a comfort to you when you were writing yours that you knew you had a little bit of leeway either way yeah um i tend to want to tie things fairly closely into fact um yeah because it gives structure so but i will leave out stuff that it you know i won't necessarily pay attention to things that that i i don't well it's just selection isn't it really i mean you can't include everything so um i i did find that one thing that i was having to do was not just work out what happened when but when people found out about things as well because if you're not actually yeah. in the know if you're just in the general population then you don't necessarily get immediately told stuff that's not it's not going to be on the newsreels maybe instantly or at all if it's if it's bad news and they don't want the local they don't want the the population to know about it because it's bad propaganda so yeah. um it's you know there were big delays built in and stuff like that so um it's difficult to sort of to balance that kind of thing to know what to sort of balance the the timeline of actual events against what the story is it the story as it unfolds and the character's potential awareness of what the bigger historical picture is because the bigger historical picture is unfolding and very messy as it unfolds so yeah it it was yeah and and media was such a tool at that time as well because Mm. they had just gotten tv just before the second world war but they turned that television off because they were scared of of what the enemy could use that for Mm. and i think the second world war was the first time the government realized what they could use the media for Mm. to control the narrative to control what the people knew when they knew it so that they could try and keep morale up yeah and they could keep people fighting you know and alongside that rather wonderfully the bbc just decided to tell the truth however inconvenient um which you know it's not earned them a lot of friends no but amazing like you know just just be the honest voice talking in the background um and yeah i i found found that really heartwarming and 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 a wee bit sad given how things seem to be playing out nowadays um that we haven't quite got that quite so much we don't have that anymore Um, that that doesn't exist anymore yeah, but the BBC were genuinely stoical, heroic in in, in their determination to tell the yeah. truth, um, they no matter how inconvenient it yeah. it it was. Yeah. Sorry, I'm I, digging away there. It's all right. Don't worry about it. And that's that's what I loved about yours was because I saw from just the press release and from the small PDF I got was I'm like this person will understand the balancing act it takes. Mm to kind of create that world and Mm. i've had some amazing i had chris lloyd on i've had tracy reese on who are incredible you know historical writers but sometimes you need somebody that's a bit brutally honest and understands the balancing act that you have to play both Mm. as a writer and and as a creator of the series Mm. um and that's what made me excited i'm like you'll get 
my pain of me trying to figure out how to do this balancing act that I had to do in mine. Yeah, um, absolutely. That my publisher is going to open this book. And of course, I didn't put any Shetland in it. And I didn't put it so that everyone can read it, obviously. And uh, how I, I tried to keep it as modern and it, as up-to-date language as I could so that I wasn't taking away everybody's ability to read and understand it. Mm. I, I swear she's going to look at it and go, oh gosh, I've got like the worst editing job to do on this. But I, to be honest, I think it's, if you have a much broader term, like you can use as many, as contemporary languages you can so that people could understand what's going on, it allows that message to be spread further. And that's what yeah. I attempted to do with yeah. mine. And I think you can colour it as well with... Um, I mean, I, I've i had this sort of... This, this, you know, you're speaking about contemporary language and potentially that's in dialogue. And I've always yeah. had this sort of thing that I've had to... Um, I've sort of just sort of ticking it, irritation and annoyance in my mind of how to deal with this when you're writing historical characters. Um, how do you get them to speak in a way that feels authentic, but is immediately transparent, or at least transparent enough to a reader, and doesn't like? I I don't like I don't like the sort of written accents that you you sometimes yeah. see. Um, I think I can't read it. Well, it's it's also it's it sort of puts a barrier between you and and the character, and it potentially like we I'm we can be quite so it plays up hell for me. Well, there you go; it's a nightmare. But also, yeah, like I'm, I'm a... you know, I'm from the the northwest of England. So you can sometimes hear that in my accent. You're from Shetland mm-hmm. and living in Scotland, um, in the mainland now, and like I have a regional accent. But what I don't like is to. What, what I'm aware of is that, that historically that is like problematic and kind of funny or yeah. or stupid or ridiculous in some way. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very, very conscious about not writing either historical or, or regional or, or whatever um, as in any way a barrier to the intellect or the imagination of that character or what's going on emotionally for that character. So I do tend to write dialogue quite straight but I do yeah. look for things that are kind of historical tells or or, yeah, or, or regional tells or things like bits of flavour, bits of colour to add that will give it a sense of the time and of the place without having people say, hey, up, or, well, this isn't Northern Set, my book is yeah. set in London, but without giving them cock, broad Cockney accents to, to signify course, that on yeah. the page. We know where they are. We've seen London all around them. Let's just, we can assume, I think, from that, the way they speak is going to be reflective of, the world around them and the way they speak is also like i use as i said i use language that, that that i try to use language that feels of the time but i wouldn't ever spell it in a way that suggested how you should speak it because i yeah. think that that's just that just it, i find that distasteful the the first time that i discovered dialect writing was when i opened outlander and mm. I was like, oh, this is bad. Like, I know she had specialists involved, mm. but every place has its own dialect in Scotland. Yeah. And every yeah. place has its own way of speaking. Yeah. And sometimes she would have an Aberdonian thing or she would have right. a Dundee thing, and it just didn't feel like it connected. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I called her out on Twitter, and I, I always feel bad about this, but I called her out on Twitter about it because, to me, it would have been a fantastic book if she'd written it normally. Right. And I could have I'm really enjoyed I, it. Yeah, I'm afraid I don't know that book. And there are some absolutely bloody wonderful books that are written in, in dialect. It's, yes. It's the getting it, like, it's the knowing it. It's having yeah. it in your blood and, and writing it from, from that position, I think. That's, but then you, you, that's absolutely key. you cut everybody else off and you make it for that area. Or you oblige that's them to try book. harder. And, like, if you're prepared to do that as a writer, I think that's a really brave thing to do, to just make people it work brave, at it. And you can tune your ear. You have to ear. accept that you are cutting off hundreds of thousands of people not who might not get it. Some, something like train spotting, like, mm-hmm. enormous, huge. And, and once you've trained your ear and your eye to, to, to its, the way it works... The accent, yeah. Absolutely readable, not, you know, absolutely transparent once, once, once you've, you've got your head in the game so just like obliging a reader to just get their head in the game i think yeah is itself sort of enjoyable I think that's for incredibly a reader. difficult to mm-hmm. do though yeah it bloody is but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try yeah. but then, you know i as yeah. i said i was writing london it would i'm not from london it would be wrong of me to pretend that i know what i'm doing with, i mean with, i like, i had the awful decision of do i write this in shetland or do i write this in english and mm. When I thought about it, I'm like, okay, well, the Shetland dialect's dying. I know it's mm. dying. I write poetry. I have a cousin who's who's an author who writes in mm. Shetland, and and that and he advised me. He's like, don't write this in Shetland mm. because we want Shetland to be seen on a global stage. Mm. If you write it in dialect, either Norway, Denmark, Faroe, and Shetland will be your only audiences. Mm. Because it will be too hard for somebody to try and piece together all these different languages to understand mm. one. Mm. And my cousin's a very smart man. And I said, okay. And I don't regret it. I really don't. Because no. I think it means that that story will last longer. Mm. And it will mean more. It will bring more people to aware of the islands but it will also make them aware of what Shetland did during the war. And it won't just seem like they sat at the top of the North Sea and didn't do anything. Yeah, Because absolutely. they actually did. And I think people think Shetlanders take a very much hands-off approach. And in a lot of ways we do. But that doesn't mean that we're not out at sea trying to help, trying to absolutely. do our bit, you know. And ab- absolutely, that. I mean, that is a... A dynamic that so many marginalized groups have to have to yeah. navigate like do you participate in the dominant the hegemony mm-hmm. the, the the dominant culture in its own way of speaking or do you continue with the the, the minority culture and, and celebrate with within that and, and explore yeah. that and I think both those things are so important. I think, um, uh, and I think there you know, will be a lot of Shetland people who will be upset at me for not doing it. I, and I, I'm mm. very aware of that fact that there's going to be a lot of people upset with me. But well, they can I had write their own novels. About, you know, if they've got yeah. problems with it, they should go yeah. and write their own novels. Exactly, and that's what I had to say to myself. I'm like, if I was to be honest with myself. Am I doing it for them or am I doing it for the group, yeah. for everybody else? And I thought, yeah. this is for everybody else and not, I don't want to be an assistant to keeping Shetland secrets in Shetland forever. 
Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that that was where my line was kind of, it, it was an awkward line for me, but that was where I drew the line and said, no, you know, Shetland's had its time for keeping secrets within its islands. Now it's time for us to just open the floodgates and let them out. You know, yeah. because we're a Viking culture. We grew up with the Vikings. We know a lot more about the Viking culture than people would realize. We've hidden secrets about Vikings for thousands of years. Some of us have actually forgotten half the secrets that we've hidden for thousands of years. <laughs> but it's there. And I think it should, shouldn't just, we shouldn't just be known for a murder TV series that was mm. very, is very popular. And we shouldn't be known for a murder series books. You know, we should be able to say, hey, we've actually got a very different history to everybody else. And we're proud of our history. This is a, this is the secrets of this place. And so you can better understand what these rural islands do to people and what, why Shetlanders are the way they are and why it's important to celebrate that. Yeah. Did you, did you find, particularly being somebody from the north of England, writing in the south, did you yeah. feel that north and south divide? Well, uh, we have family history in London. Um, my dad's, well, complicated, but like my dad's actually Scottish, but um, grew up, oh, was cool. born in Scotland, but grew up in uh, South London. And so right. South London's been on my map my entire life. Um, yeah. And so we're sort of down there, back and forth, visiting relatives and friends ever since I can remember. So I've got sort of the north-south divide is sort of <laughs> is in me really because yeah, I grew course. up here up up here in, in North Lancashire, um, just sort of on the edge of the Lake District here in which just over the border in Cumbria, um, yeah. and so not too far from Scotland. No, not not far at all. Not far at all. Um, so yeah, that north-south divide is kind of part of part of my. And pe- it's people bones, actually, it's, really. <laughs> it's so funny because people outside of the UK don't realise that there's more than just the Scotland and Wales and mm. England divides. Yeah. There is actually divides within England itself. Sure, yeah. And, you know, the North and South book, they just think is a, a work of complete fiction, but it was actually touching on real issues that was happening in England at the time. Absolutely, yeah, and you still, know, still the the case. We're still talking this nonsense, yeah. you know, this leveling up business that never happens. Um, <laughs> and they're they're closing, they close the Oldham, Oldham Theatre, you know, and in yeah. a in a time when, when we're supposed to be improving the regions, when it's been noticed and 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 mm-hmm. um, it's supposed to be a, a priority that we're improving the regions. So, defunding theatres, which have supported, generated. If you're going to be entirely cynical about it, it brings so much money into a community because people go yeah. there and they spend their money and, and people tour there and they stay locally. And it, it, the arts generate so much money for, for um, local communities. They bring so much life into local communities. And I'm not a breadhead. I'm not cynical about this kind of thing. I very much believe in art for it's the joy of it but, and the complexity of it. But if you are a cynic and you do care about putting the, the figures first, it's ridiculous not to fund theatres because they pay they pay so much back. And we they just do, lost yeah. a major theatre locally and it breaks my heart. And it's just it's just it's just an absolute tragedy. As somebody that walked the boards as an actress, as a teenager, mm. Um, mm. I, I 
basically was in drama from the age of eight all the way through till I was 18. Mm. Mm. It gave people a place to go as kids. It gave yep. them a club. It gave them yep. life confidence and yep. self-esteem. Yep. There's more to theater than just the plays because the plays have an yeah. impact on the community but it also gives people confidence self-esteem sure gives them life skills they need and i think Absolutely. every kid should have the chance to walk the stage and that to me is hugely important and i hate it when i hear because i did hear of the the theater shine i was gutted because it's like yeah. i've toured i've been on tour in jetland i've been yeah. on tour down into edinburgh i've played uh i did a play in edinburgh um theater i can't remember which one now but to me that was an experience that i was able to add to my skill set and made me appreciative of the experiences i had and yeah. it made me talk up more and it made me stand up for people more. maybe that's not a good thing in challenge because they do have the policy if you stick your head above the ball pit you get it cut off mm -hmm. but I think I actually did some good change when I was doing that. So, yeah, I'm really sad to see that this levelling up isn't about bringing up all the communities. And let's be honest, the North has not had its funding for a very long time. No, we don't. We don't get anything near the fund funding that, that um, no. London gets for transport, for example. And the transport system here is shocking. But uh, the old yeah. Coliseum will have had youth programmes. Um, we have one yeah. in the town where I live. My kids have both gone to it, and it has been absolutely transformative for both of them. Yeah. Um, youth clubs are widely accessible. It's just yeah. is just is 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 a waste of money because you end up paying so much more as a culture, as a, as a society, yeah. for the, the 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 neglect that 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 follows. Basically, the one thing that if you look at London and you look at the problems in London. And they do have a high number of teenagers killing teenagers right now. But if you look at the number of youth clubs that's in London, it is shockingly non-existent. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. those kids have nowhere to go. Yeah. They're hanging and out you know they're in really the cheap. streets. Yeah, they yeah. are really cheap. Youth clubs Being are really club cheap worker, to run. I know yeah. that, right? I've seen as, us as... do it, you know. Yeah, as compared with having young offenders in in the, mm -hmm. in the penal system running a youth club is bloody cheap so it's just yeah. it's an ideological decision it's not a sensible There's, one there is all. a dance club in london which was volunteered on i don't think it's running anymore and it gave the kids a chance to come in and perform and dance battle against each other and things like that now when i was a teenager i started a dance program in shetland right I set up an area where kids could go and dance and it revolutionized kids in Shetland. Now there is a competitive dance scene in Shetland. Right? Wow. <laughs> I never got the credit for it until I went back and somebody who was very dear to me, Wendy, turned to me in her office and she said, Crystal, you started this dance movement in Shetland and none of us could be more grateful for what you've done. But you're not going to get a big certificate for it because people aren't <laughs> going to admit that you started it. But know that the people who were around when you were in the youth club system knows it was you. So I take pride in that. Um, I also did 120 hours teaching dancing while doing my standard grade exams. 
which I wow. did get a certificate for, which, you know, there was something. But I, I understood the life changing. I saw kids that had come up from Wales, who'd come up from Ireland, who'd come up from Glasgow, who'd come up from Edinburgh, who were the most awful kids in school. But when they started going to youth club and they started integrating with us, they settled down. And I noticed mm -hmm. that as a kid. Yeah. As a kid. To now being somebody who went back and I worked in the youth clubs for a year, I saw a huge difference. Mm -hmm. They've lost so much funding for youth clubs in Shetland. It is atrocious. It breaks mm -hmm. my heart because I literally had to do a night at youth club where my only resource was our imagination. Mm. There was no tuck shop, there was no supplies, they had not been restocked. And I had to realise then and there, these kids are paying a pound for our imagination, right? Mm. And I remember saying to the guy that ran it, get your head out your arse because this place has nothing, you know, because it was a very mm. small... And that, this was the only place these kids in the country had to go. Yeah. In the countryside... Buses were not running right because the bus service had just collapsed in Shetland. These kids had no ways of getting into Lerwick. So this little community hall was all they had. Mm. And we spent four hours entertaining these kids. And we got teenagers to sit and actually have a conversation with adults. Shocking. <laughs> in fact, I actually had a young boy say to me, he says, I've never, ever sat with an adult and had an open, honest conversation in my life. Frankie. And he actually walked away feeling listened to, respected, mm -hmm. because his family had told him he couldn't do what he loved. And we told him, you know what, it's your life, you can do what you love. You can mm. go for what you want. And we installed that confidence in him, and we installed that self-esteem in him that would never have been there if there wasn't somebody else to say to him, it's okay. Mm. And I, I hate Absolutely. that I left. I had no other option but to leave. So I think youth clubs are a huge important thing and arts are hugely important. And the more that this leveling up system doesn't happen, the worse that we're going to see these, these awful crimes happening because mm. the kids, they literally watch everything that's going on in the States and it's getting emulated back here. And our police force is not ready for that. They really are not ready for it. Because the last thing we want is gangs, like the Bloods and the Crypts and all that to get a stronghold here in our teenagers. Because if they're sitting watching TV every night and they're watching music videos and they're on YouTube and they're on these TikToks, they're going to start emulating what they're seeing because they think that's the only thing they can do. We have an incredible rap scene in London, and I think that's great. We have an incredible hip-hop scene in London, which is great. But if you look at it, a lot of the behaviours you're seeing in South London and in these London areas is coming from American media influences. And I think that's a question we need to be asking. Why? Why are we letting this happen? So, don't know if you agree with any of that, but... Um, well, I'm, I'm not informed enough to know. Yeah, it's not... 
it's not an area that I know enough about to really comment, to be honest with you. <laughs> no, it's fine. I was just, to me, it was like, I understood it, you know, from, from working in it. And, yeah. And it seems to me like crazy that we haven't, haven't addressed this. Yeah. So moving into books, what have you read recently that is stuck with you the most? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, so a lot comes my way um one way or another like you you know i get i get sent proofs which is amazing to just have these turn up um um one thing yeah. that i got an early peek at was the new book from francis spufford um Ooh, i don't okay. know if you know his work um no i haven't gotten him but, yet. I'm okay so he's in the post golden hill was his first work well, his first novel um yeah. and then his light eternal was shortlisted or longlisted for the booker um a couple of years wow. ago and then this one, Cahokia Jazz, um, and he's coming out later this year, um, and I got to see it in an early proof, and it's amazing. Um, it's sort wow. of set in an alternate um, 1920s America where just, like, one tiny fact gets changed, and yeah. it just sort of spirals out from there, and it's absolutely beguiling, wonderful atmosphere, wonderful, fascinating story, um, and just just a fully imagined world and i just adored it so that one it's not out yet but when it is out you know pre-order now i'll, I I'll definitely be looking <laughs> for that one yeah yeah have you tried any of tracy reese's work no i don't know that no um i just i got sent the elopement and mm. it was the idea of this girl runs away with a painter and it goes wrong mm. and the reaction of high society compared to downstairs mm. and how that whole series of events unfolds mm. now i'm very pragmatic with my historical fiction because either i love it and it flows really well and i can get taken away with it or i stumble over things and i struggle mm. with it that was one of the first books in the longest time that I've actually sat and read and it just went and it was so mm. easy to read mm. and it was so emotionally satisfying mm. too because you could understand why she'd done certain things and why mm -hmm. she was pointing out certain things as she was going. I don't think mm -hmm. she realised quite how well she was pointing things out and mm. it was, certainly wasn't something you could tell was planned, it was just unfolding as she was writing mm. it was really lovely and mm. i did struggle a little bit because the the guy in it is from austria uh, from poland i should say and so his english was broken and she'd actually mm. done it as if he's speaking with broken english which i struggled a little mm. bit with but mm. i got into the kind of rhythm of it after a while mm. um and she did the house of silver mirror and the rose garden and both of those are really good because mm. it's just such a different take and it's the start mm. of the victorian era so you're kind of diving into an area that's new not really been touched and i just thought it was very refreshing um mm. and i have really quite enjoyed uh reviewing for her and then mm. i got sent chris lloyd's paris the clem i think i said that right and that's set, yeah. yeah. And that's set in the idea of there being a detective who's in Paris. They are un under German control, 
Mm. And him balancing keeping the Germans at bay mm. from normal citizens, but also how normal citizens were behaving at that time. Mm. So it's sort of a very contrast world, and this poor guy doesn't have a very stable life, doesn't have a very stable way of thinking, and there's that knock-on effect for him, that, that kind mm. of emotional journey for him. So mm. those two were really cracking, and I, I just thought... Mm. You might enjoy them. It's a yeah, very yeah, yeah. different take good. on yeah. Yeah. two different worlds. So yeah. I always think it's good if you can share recommendations because it allows people to maybe meet writers they haven't met before. Sure. In sort Absolutely. of book senses. And I love that world. I mean, I, I've written about Paris in the occupa- under the occupation as well, or, or France under the occupation more, yeah. more widely. Um and it is a it's a sort of it's just an incredibly Uneasy I got and I got lucky world to to write about. I got lucky. They sent me um, Switchboard Soldiers by Jennifer. Mm-hmm. I can't pronounce her last name. By Jennifer, and <laughs> again, it was a very beautiful story about American girls who run the wires, the phones, mm. and they're taken out of their lives. And you get to read a little bit about their lives before they go. And you see them going through the training. And then they're in the war itself. And they're all split up. And they're all sent in different directions. And you kind of see them evolving as it goes on. I'm in the last sort of 40 pages or something to go. Uh, Not that I get a lot of time to read. I might get 20 (laughs) pages a piece and then I have to go do something. But I do try to read 20 pages a day. And that book was amazing. Just the character development within itself and she mm. generally goes to countries and she tries to experience the atmosphere of that country mm-hmm. so that she can then breed it into her work and I think she did a phenomenal job with that one so mm. I would recommend looking up Switchboard Soldiers um, It I got it in hardback I hope you get it in paperback because the hardback is so awkward is it really is a big fat one is it yeah, it is book. quite a big one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's 400 pages and the writing's like that size. It's so tiny. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I reading... thought with the size of it, and I, I thought when I open this, it's going to be good size lettering that yeah. it's going to be easy for me to read. And then I opened it, and that's what's taken me so long is because the, the, the writing is so small. Yeah, tiny. The book has to be practically at my nose for <laughs> me to be able to read it properly. But then the downside of that is it's a hardback, so my arms get tired after. Yeah, but at least it's, they survive a bit better. I'm reading the the Quincunks yeah. by Charles Palliser, which is um, this amazing neo-Victorian novel. Um, Ooh, so okay. it sort of very much feels like it's written at the time, but came out in the 1980s. It feels like sort of um, Wilkie Collins and and uh, Charles yeah. Dickens did actually have a baby together, and this is it. Um, yeah, and. Um, Though of course they did publish stuff together, but not not fiction of this kind. Yeah, um, of and um, yeah, so it's this extraordinary, extremely long novel. It's like one thousand two hundred pages long, and I've got it in paperback. And I'm afraid it's just kind of like, and I've been reading it in the bath as well. So it's kind I of do, I do that too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would never read a hardback in the bath, so you know, it's a trade off. But um, like, I yes, got, I got, got one of these but yes, it's getting destroyed. Yeah, writing stands is the key to writing in the back. Yeah. So that you just yeah. need one dry hand to yeah. turn the pages. <laughs> I, I've learned yeah. that's the only way I could read hardbacks yeah. in the bath because yeah. I have a terrible habit of 
my arm goes dead and I end up dropping yeah. it. So yeah. So when my husband risk. was working and I was spending more time reading, I bought a bench with a with a mm. stand in it so that mm. I could I could have my glass of wine slides in one end. My book sits on this this nice stand and I can just turn the pages and every so often I just slide out the glass and I'm good. You know, life goals right there. Life right goals. there. <laughs> it is. And it's even got a cubby for your phone. So it just sits right on this on this side and it just Fantastic. slides in and your phone doesn't yeah. move. And I've got cats. So I, I didn't uh, know this item of furniture existed until just now. But now I know it's an essential Thing that we yeah, and it's, need. it's so you can get her for a tenner on, on Amazon. Yeah, ten pounds is all yeah. I paid for mine. Yeah, so, essential. You know, it's essential. Um, yeah, my husband hates it because he can't <laughs> have a bath with it in, so he has to lift it out. Yeah, because he's so big, he's he's over six foot, so he, he sleep sort of in the bath. His knees is above the knees the, get in the, the way. tub, and yeah, you know, so he has yeah. to take it out. But I love it because there's nothing worse than having a book in the bath and then having your cat knock everything into the bath yeah. while you try to read um, yeah. but they can't do that with this bench and it's hilarious, I sit and watch them trying to knock this glass over and it just doesn't move <laughs> oh, it, honestly it was the best buy I ever I ever made <laughs> so I forgot to ask you is there a character hmm. that in that book that stuck with you when you were writing yeah um well actually two really if i'm allowed to okay because i am now writing a sequel um ah okay I don't that would have been my away... next question yeah so i mean to be fair like there's a lot of the story that gets resolved like the main story gets resolved in the midnight news but there's a few loose threads still hanging at the end like how things are gonna work from here because it's not an obviously settled situation in some ways at the end um and so i wanted to see what happened next to certain key characters um and so i have done and so i'm working on that now um and so yeah so charlotte like stays with me um but i think more than anything really tom does because he's um he just has this quality of he's so bruised by life but he's so determined but he's also so yeah. sort of self-sabotaging so you have this kind of really we uh, all know someone like that yeah <laughs> it's yeah it's a really sort of ta- he's a tangled little mess but really really focused and determined and 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 that focus in a way is um part of the problem for him that he can't look beyond what he sort of thinks he has to do and and so I just wanted to spend a bit more time making his life a bit more messy for him really because he's got things kind of really quite he thought he had things narrow and lined out out what he was going to do he had his goal he knew where he was going and then yeah you know again the world exploded in his face Charlotte kind of exploded at him um And yeah, so finding out really what what unfolds for him more than anything else was was what I wanted to do after the midnight news. So Tom, Tom's still with me. That's good. I I must admit, when I was 
we planned out the Marie's World series, and it was it was thirty two books in it. And I think it's still planned at thirty two. We're only like five in, and I can see it mm. growing. And there's this one character who's supposed to be this narcissistic villain guy in it, mm-hmm. and to me, he's based on my friend. And then, mm. kind of with you know getting to know the character for the character he's morphed into his own little being and now mm-hmm. he's got spin-off which yeah. i knew was gonna happen <laughs> i knew it from the minute i started to write him he was going to have his own spin-off i just didn't realize it was going to be three or four books of his own wow and harold is that like i always thought it would be the twins who turned on each other that would stick with me and would always be there and annoy the, annoy me even when I'm writing something else. <laughs> but they didn't. It was Harold mm. that did. And for anyone who doesn't know, Marie's World Series was based on the idea that Layla takes her sister's, who her sister who's a famous dancer's diaries and publishes them to the world. Mm. Biggest betrayal a sister could do, right? Mm. And the. They've both got their own love triangles and they've both got their own lives. And it's kind of their journeys back to each other. Marie's got the, you know, she's got to find a way to forgive her sister for the diaries and the film mm-hmm. and, and all that. And But she's also got to balance it with, I have to protect my naive sister from entering the wrestling world. But she doesn't know, she doesn't understand what she's getting herself into, how she could get hurt. And at the same time, she's at war with her father because her father really set all this off by not telling him he was a wrestler, by keeping this secret world that really came and blew up and they got dragged into the middle of. And it's that weird broken family dynamic that mm. makes it interesting, that's made mm. me and Joe think, okay, we can write 32 books from this. Mm. Because it's not just the journey of these girls, it's you've got the people that are affected around them you've got the father you've got the half sister who ends up right in the middle of these two women who mm. pull her apart literally pull her apart and amber makes all these mistakes because she doesn't know the rules she doesn't know mm. where the goalposts are and she's sort mm. of trying to date one day at a time and survive mm. so for me like i always find harold will pop up particularly at a really bad time like I'll be editing something and then I'll hear his voice saying hey that's really boring want to come write me for a while and I'll be like mm. no okay. <laughs> doing something it's mm. really bad when he does it when I'm doing my studies at uni honestly like <laughs> I'll hear him commentary on whatever mm. I'm reading for uni going mm. this is a lot of rubbish come on <laughs> throw it in the bin and come do stuff with me like just taunting you constantly um and it's funny because the friend of mine who inspired harold is a wrestler and he's a mensa guy and he's he openly admits he self-destructs and i keep Mm. it's always fascinated me about him was he gave up this hundred thousand a year job was an ex-marine and did all this amazing stuff and he chose to go and wrestle for just enough money to make himself comfortable and get Mm. hit in the head with steel chairs and Mm. be 
to do all this really awful stuff to himself. Mm. And I, I could never... He was the most fascinating person to me because he went and did that. Mm. And I, I yeah, understood the... Yeah, yeah. It's a really interesting series of decisions to have made, isn't it? And to unpick yeah, that. So yeah, so... He, he was the perfect inspiration for Harold and I get texts from him saying I'm not reading your series because it's a, it's a romance series. No way. Mm. But I'll read the Harold book when it comes out because I know you based him on it. <laughs> he just wants to see how I would take yeah. um, his personality yeah. and, and make it into a character and make it into a person. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're and kind I, of back I think where we started what, there, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, well, everything on this show seems to come first circle. Honestly, it's the great thing about this show, but it could also be the most frustrating thing about the show. You have survived the the book and life podcast for this week. <laughs> that quick, <laughs> you know. Um, I always say survived because I I know you'll know this, but sometimes media feels like we pull our hair out because we answer the same questions over and over and over mm. and over and over again, mm. and it can it can get monotonous. And at least well, these were the not the same life. questions. And also, this was the first time I've done it for this book. So um, it was yeah, really fun. Yeah, there you go. Thank you very much. And the great thing is, this is this is designed to be fun. I didn't make you do the word game, um, <laughs> which I, I, I normally say for certain guests. I'll be like, yeah, let's do the word game and we'll exchange recommendations. Usually it's the ones that mm. struggle with just having a, a conversation and, and being open. Mm. But I'm glad, you know, I'm hoping you've enjoyed it. Yep, I'm hoping Thank you, you will come back when you've got to. another book to to release, and we'll break down more of your. You know, I'll talk about your review in the next one, and and we'll talk about the one coming. Hopefully, it will be the sequel to this one, so that I can talk to you about the first one. Um, you yep. know, and, and it should that's, be that's the great thing. We can have fun, and we can talk about subjects that we wouldn't otherwise talk about because we don't really get a lot of time at signings and at readings yeah. and at conferences yeah. to do the things and yeah. have the conversations we want to have and at least this gives us that space to do that brilliant thank you so much well it has been an honor to have you and guys you'll want to stop by next week because we have a sneaky bestseller coming from mills and boone's company harlequin to talk to us you're not going to want to miss that guys for until next time buy a book read a book stay safe and don't kill anybody